And you are here on People Have the Power where, man, we have such a treat in store for you today. Last week, got the pleasure of sitting down with John Bon Jovi, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, to talk about the band's brilliant new album, 2020, songwriting, hanging out with Paul McCartney, his choices for the greatest songs of social change and justice. This conversation was such an absolute blast. I could geek out with John on Tom Waits all day. Hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Excited to talk to you about this because it, it's a really wonderful lyrical record. It's a, a very powerful record Thanks. from start to finish. I'm I'm curious what was this? What was the period where you started writing this record? Two years, uh, really. August of eighteen would probably be the earliest song, which was "Blood in the Water," uh, written for the record. By March of 19, we had gone to Nashville to record what I thought was the album, um, but in retrospect was the first batch of songs because I hadn't yet written Lower the Flag or Let It Rain or American Reckoning or Do What You Can. So at least four of those 10 um, were written after the fact. Well, it's interesting because this is something that always fascinates me. Usually there is a jumping off point for a record. Was there one song early on that really sort of formulated the sound and theme of this record? Not necessarily, because I think that what I was thinking at the time, I did have the title 2020 as an album title in, in March of 19. But of course there was a wryness and a tongue-in-cheek kind of, it'll be an election year when we put it out. It'll be a hell of a bumper sticker, might sell some T-shirts. But it also had the dual meaning that I had clear vision. After all I'd been through between 2013 and 2017, when we put out This House Is Not For Sale, I'd come through that with clear vision of what I wanted to do and what the vision of the band was. So I then say that to the band. I said, I've got this idea. This is what I think the album title is. But it was just a collection of songs. Um, then as events started to unfold and I started to write more, I thought I'm going to take the position as a witness to history. Nothing more. As though I was an unbiased journalist or I was the voyeur. I, I, I didn't want to make it about me. And so that kind of, oh, let's write a love song and let's write a buddy song. It really didn't have much appeal to me. And as I started, you know, down this road, I got more and more excited that I, I had clarity behind the album title 2020. Now it was a moment in time. And yes, I was witness to history. And okay, I've got clear vision. True. Maybe it'll even sell a t-shirt someday. True. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, is now 2020 was a, a moment in time. Well, and, and, you know, as Chris and I were saying this morning, what a moment in time. What, what, you know, no one could have, you know, it's so funny though, because I've talked about this with so many artists. On the one hand, no one could have predicted this. On the other hand, there's such a sense of prophecy among artists and, 
And so what was the timeline that, um, sorry, I suck with titles because I listened to everything all the way through, but what was the timeline that now American Reckoning and Lower the Flag were written sort of later in the writing, correct? American Reckoning was the last song written for the record, which would have been right after the passing of George Floyd, but Lower the Flag was last summer. And, and, and we could find out the actual calendar date of the, the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, because that's the, the day I wrote the song. It was that Sunday. Uh, those, those two shootings happened two days in a row. Uh, so that was the summer of 19. 19. And then technically, you know, let's call it the summer of 20, because um, I don't know the day that George Floyd was killed. But... Uh, it was that week, you know, that I wrote that. See, it's so interesting because I was just talking about this the other day with Chuck D on the new Public Enemy album. And the first, the title cut, the first song is called When the Grid Goes Down. And it's a song that was written in May. And what's crazy, right, is a song that was written in May now feels so much more timely as we come closer to the election. And a song like American Reckoning that was written even a couple of months ago, as we, uh, as we come into what, tomorrow's October 1st, as we're 30 something days away, it, these songs, and, and also by the way, cause you actually mentioned fires and we've just had the fires here in California where we are. It's amazing. These songs feel so much more timely even than written three months ago. Do you feel a sort of sense of prophecy in them or? I, I really appreciate this conversation and our being able to talk about it. I looked forward to this interview because of the songwriting aspect, but I'll give you a great example of one that's the prophecy is blood in the water. And if you look at that, because it was the first one in the summer of 18, and I could walk you through it, a storm is coming, Stormy Daniels. Let me be clear, uh, you know, the walls around you are closing in, could have been last night's debate. So whether it was Stormy Daniels and Michael Cohen and General Flynn to the impeachment hearings, to the Russian hack, at the end of it, which was, you know, in yeah. 16, now that's relevant now, this same storyline to me is a revolving door of characters that I, I did think for a period of time, oh my goodness, this is going to be dated. No one's going to know who's, you know, I'm referencing, but it doesn't matter because two years later, it's, it's, it was as relevant this morning after last night's debates. So that song to me, specifically is is prophecy it's 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 timeless well so is a song like unbroken which i really loved you know and it's again i mean anti-war songs are always going to be you know timeless because unfortunately look i've talked about this so much in doing the show you take a song like what's going on which is going to be 50 next may and people are still singing it in the streets but it's like unfortunately you know, these songs still have such a timelessness because we're still dealing with these issues. Yes, that is the so, world in which we live, yes. So take me through a little bit of Unbroken because I really love that one. And, you know, it's interesting, before we come to that one, though, it's something you said about, you know, looking at it from the point of view of a journalist yes. or from the point of view of an observer. That makes me think of both literature and film. Are there sort of great works of, you know, literature or film that, that, inspire you or that you think of when you think of that sort of being able to watch and sort of, as you put it, almost a voyeur? Well, I read a lot of biographies in history. Um, and, and then I'm, I'm, I'm a, a student of current topics in the news and all. So I, 
unlike Sarah Palin when she says, I read all of them, <laughs> you know, but I do read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. You know, I do watch the evening news and the PBS News Hour. So I, I'm paying attention to what's going on in current events, but I'm also a student of history. Um, and the big picture, those songs that you reference, like what's going on, or, you know, when Stephen Stills writes for what it's worth, those are timeless classic songs. Song Like I'm Broken is going to be timeless and classic because soldiers will always be coming home and dealing with this. But no, I didn't watch, you know, Born on the Fourth of July or, or read Kovic's book to be inspired to write that song. I had had a conversation with a director of a, of a, of a very small but, but moving documentary called To Be of Service. And he had asked me to write a song hoping that my name and then, you know, his bet that I could write the song, talent could bring attention to this issue. And I wanted my spin to be the pride that men and women had when they put that uniform on and then the issues that they have once they take it off. You know, when you think about how identified a soldier is when he walks down the street, that's a great sense of pride in the world in which we live today. You know, it's not the Vietnam era when the, the young men and women returned to be spat upon. Nowadays, you know, they're, they're heroes, right? And they come back and we all appreciate what they give. When you take that uniform off, you know, you're putting the Superman costume back in the closet and yet you're having to deal with the traumas. And I still wanted to find that thing that made them uh, want to keep doing it uh, and, and be proud of what they did. And so at the, the very last line, when it says, uh, you asked me, was it worth it to be of service in the end? Well, the blessing and the curse is, yeah, I do it all again. And the responses I've gotten to that differentiate that from Fogarty writing not Vietnam era songs or Bruce writing Born in the USA. Well... It's interesting, too, because, by the way, when I asked that, I wasn't speaking specifically about Unbroken, just in general for me, because I was an English major. So I'm always fascinated in how literature and film, because I was a film geek. But it's interesting, too, because I love the double entendre of the line to be of service, because that ties in so nicely with, I mean, for you, all the charity work that you've done. And, and you know, by the way, I, I, so you're, uh, if I remember this correctly, because I'm my favorite songwriter in the history of the world is Tom Waits. You're a diehard Tom Waits fan, huh? The, the, yeah. Oh, so yeah. the day I die is is maybe you know as great an anti-war song as as ever written. So you know there there's Waits. I adore Tom Waits. Yeah, Waits and Cohen. Uh, you know, two of my favorite lyricists. Absolutely. Now, did I see too? Because I'll geek out on Tom Waits all damn day long. But you guys did a cover of San Diego Serenade at one point, didn't you? Oh my God, a thousand years ago. Yeah. Yeah, a thousand years ago. See, things never die on the internet, but it's so funny because I couldn't find the video, but they, I love the fact that someone referred to it as a, an obscure Tom Waits song. And it's like, no, if you're a Tom Waits guy, that is, that is one of those ones. He's a genius, you know? It's, uh, some people just think of uh, looking for the heart of Saturday night or, or that they, if they really think they're witty, they go... You know, he wrote Jersey Girl. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but, um, I, I love a good storyteller. Uh, and he is one of the greats. 
Well, and it's interesting because, I mean, I think that's what I appreciate so much about this album is the storytelling told in so many different points. And it's funny because with the idea of, you know, I was thinking about it before this interview and people look at it as like, well, maybe you haven't spoken out on such sociopolitical issues before and people might be surprised. But it's like one thing I've learned in doing this podcast, you know, a great songwriter can write a great love song just as much as a great, you know, sociopolitical song. And it's like these songs don't veer so crazy far from going back to a song like Living on a Prayer, which is just a story song. It's a story song. The thing about a song like that, which was the timeless boy meets girl, you know, we will win in the end, uh, fill in the blank with the names and then they become you. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's generic, but the story's been told. Um, what I loved about this is I didn't make these my story. This was just the truth being reported, you know, just facts and moments in time that I either lived or watched or read about. And so I, I really didn't have much of an interest in writing a pop song in the true sense of a pop song with that boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. It's just wasn't inspiring right now. So it's interesting for you. You mentioned you've gotten great responses to, I believe you said Unbroken. Have people, how many songs have other people heard? And I mean, what's been the response? Because, you know, I do also feel like, look, when you put yourself out there and you speak out on a topic, people uh -huh. definitely connect with it on a much deeper level. If they can or they may misinterpret it, or you know what's going to be a curiosity, Stephen, today? For those who aren't songwriters or aren't geeking out on lyrics the way you and I might, I saw two reviews. Neither went deep. So I think that they, they listened with one ear while they were washing the dishes, and both reviews were glowing, but they didn't pay attention. You know, so it's surfacy. They, they, they're not really listening. And, and that to me is the, the drag of songs that if, it's good to let them be open inter to interpretation, but when you've worked for something with specifics, you just, you want them to understand it. Or sometimes I'll feel the guilt of thinking, well, I didn't do it right. So <laughs> if you didn't get it, then I guess I didn't tell the story properly. So I don't know. I, it's, it, it gets difficult sometimes when you're too close to it. Well, but I mean, first of all, look, every artist, as you well know, is a perfectionist to begin with. So every artist feels like you didn't do it right. But, you know, I think that's one thing we've learned in 2022. I mean, that's been sort of at times both sad and hilarious to watch is watching artists fight with their fans on social media about their political views. So it's like when you say people don't listen to it deeply, you know, I mean, I go back to, of course, Tom Morello famously saying, what songs of mine were not political? Tell me and I'll take them out of my catalog. I mean, if you missed the, you missed the boat on that, dude, you haven't been listening for your entire career. So, I mean, you are... You know, and I know you and Bruce are friends. You go back to Born in the USA in 2004 being misinterpreted. I mean, 84, actually, you know? So you're, you're in very good company and people who don't listen. And it's funny, I've learned this in talking to someone. It's almost a testament to the quality of the songwriting. People are still just appreciating the melody and the hooks. And actually, it's funny that you say the reviews were glowing, you know? But again, you and I will geek out on, on lyrics. 
So for you, it's always an interesting thing, right? When you're writing, there, things come up that are very subconscious. Writing is a subconscious thing. These things come up that you hadn't thought about. For you, were there moments on this album where you go back and hear it and you're like, wow, I didn't realize how deeply I felt about that or that I was thinking that? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, Lower the Flag uh, and American Reckoning come to mind off the top of my head. Uh, both issues that obviously I, I felt very deeply about and that I could articulate uh, and to be able to not only articulate them in conversation, but in a song. Um, these weren't things that I had ever tackled before, but I was cognizant of. And to, to get them to a place where I'm very proud of the presentation so I'm able to share it. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a long way from you give love a bad name to American Rex, you know. <laughs> But it's funny because it's also, that's interesting you say that because this comes up a lot too. Do you feel like it's something that as you've gotten older, you're more comfortable with putting yourself out there more? Because I think every artist gets more comfortable as they get older. You know, I, I, I think for clarity in truth, I adore Runaway and You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer. And that's absolutely positively who and what I was and what I wanted to say. And it's all I knew how to say at that time. I, I wasn't looking to do more than that. And because I've been around for so long that this is who I am at 58 years old. You know, that's not who I was at 21 and 25. And so this has just been the journey I'm on. Here I am today. If a, a, a listener picks up an album and and expects living on a prayer part six, you're not going to find it here, you know, and not going to find it in the notebook because I, I love the song dearly, changed my life forever, but I don't want to rewrite it. That was then. Well, it's also partly what I meant by getting older is because just your priorities change. So these things that, you know, you probably look at political things in a very different way than you did when you were younger. It becomes more important to, you know, there's a quote I always go back to. I was talking with Alice Cooper, who I love, and he said, as you get older, your fame is the brand that allows you to do good. And do you feel like it becomes, and this ties in, of course, with all your charity work as well, that that becomes more important as you get older to share all of that? You know, because we've taken the foundation to such a place that I never thought I would or where that motivation comes from, it, it really wasn't instilled in me as a kid, uh, not to, to the place that, you know, I do it now, that's for sure. My parents weren't political. My parents weren't involved in the community. It's something that evolved in me uh, with my wife, I, I, it, which is why. And it happened as I grew and grew up. No one should blame a 20-year-old for having single-minded focus on wanting to be the lead singer in a rock band and singing about that. Amen to it. But if I were 58 and still writing songs about that, I think it would be a waste of an opportunity. And for me, that's what I'd said when I was 25. I, I, I said this, when I'm 50, I don't want to be painting my fingernails black and writing bitch on my belly. 
<laughs> and, and so, you know, we stood out from the genre from whence we came. And I'll stand here in front of you with gray hair and a 32 inch waist and say, yeah, it's who I am. You know, it's, that's where I'm at. I'm not pretending and dyeing my hair and getting Botox and on the where are they now tour. I'm not interested. I'd, I'd rather walk away and, and, and leave a good looking corpse than try to, to chase the past. And that would be, to me, that would be a sin. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, because as you were talking about, you know, the evolution from writing You Give Love a Bad Name to American Reckoning, <laughs> it's funny. One artist that came to mind to me is John Lennon because you think of how the Beatles started out and they did, you know, I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You and these wonderful, great pop songs. And then he went on to write God. So are there artists for you that you look at and admire for the way they were able to age gracefully? And of course, it's ironic to say that with Lennon because, I mean, he accomplished all that in such a short time, it's you know? And beyond, it's, beyond, 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 beyond. And, and boy, what he did. I have the absolute incredible heaven-sent gift to actually be able to say that I'm friendly with Paul McCartney. And I, and I get to spend a lot of time with him in the summers. And I jokingly tell him that John and George just went back to their planet. Because <laughs> beyond, it just doesn't make any sense. And, uh, and, and then where John, I just saw that documentary. Do you see the one that's on now, uh, John Lennon versus the USA? Yeah. You know, and I didn't know because I was too young to know Nixon coming after him and the FBI and Hoover. Um, but then he wrote Imagine and fuck, you know, <laughs> and the courage and the fear that he had to have too because he didn't want to be deported. He loved what he had found in America. And he'd sure come a long way from she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And who would have ever thought that in that boy was that man? Uh, fascinates me. I'd have to think for a while as to what artist is it that comes to mind, because I really haven't. But I'm sure I could with a little bit of prodding. Well, and it's interesting because like you mentioned McCartney, there's a great example. There's a guy who continues to be relevant after 50. I also love the way that you put it, the, the heaven sent blessing to be. It's so cool that when you, because I talk about this to people all the time, you should never lose that sense of fandom. As soon as you live, lose that sense of fandom. So, could, you know, what would your 10 year old self who was listening to the Beatles think to know that you were friends with Paul McCartney? For, uh, I'm going to unfortunately spill some of my stories out of school, which I hope don't ever get me in trouble or prohibit <laughs> me from ever having another experience. But I refer to him as Beetle Paul <laughs> all the time. Wherever I'm at with him, it's a, hey, Beetle Paul, hey, Beetle Paul. And, and one night he actually said to me, why do you do that? And I said, <laughs> because, because I'm too old to call you Mr. McCartney and I'm too in awe to think that I could call you Paul. You know, I'm just, I, I'm too reverent. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that's, that was one amazing but true story. I'm such a fan 
of a lot of people like that. When I met Tom Waits, it was the same way. It's like, no, you don't get it. You know, <laughs> I, have, I have tried to write, you know, 10 of your songs for the last 30 years. I, I was like that with, with Dylan and with Bruce for the time I was a little boy. Um, you know, so a lot of those guys that I still look up to in that kind of way keep you a fan. And, that, and, and that's what it's all about. So, so one Tom Waits geek out question as a fan, if you could write one Tom Waits song, what would it be and why? Again, you're putting me on the spot. Um, and I know it's a podcast because there's, there's every single one of them is brilliant. Oh, I know. <sighs> Fuck, it's something, it, because there's one that's, it's a, from the mule variations. Um, in her sailor's mouth, it's, it's, it'll take me four seconds to find it because it's, it was the, one of the ballads on the mule variations. Check that out, the mule variations by Tom Waits. We're gonna find this. Look it up. Who are you? Is that it? What? Oh yeah, yeah. Who are you this time? Yeah. Who yeah. are you this time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that just immediately came to mind. The same way that Dylan's "I Want You" was one of those kind of songs, or or just like a woman. Um. But yeah, who are you? This, you know, who are you? Fuck. Yeah, and it's funny though because th th that one is one of my two favorite. And then you mentioned Mule Variations and Take It With Me off that album to me is is maybe the most perfect song ever written. And I love with him and with off of is it Rain Dogs when it's him and Richards. I don't want to grow up on that album, or is that on Mule Variations too? That's on Bone Machine. Bone Machine, another great album. Bone Machine, fuck. They're, I mean, they're all so good, but like I said, you know, this just to me is just geeking out as a bit, you know, yeah, yeah, and it's funny, yeah. the idea that you're like, you say, you say you spent the last 10 years trying to write, you know, or the last 30 years writing 10 of his songs or whatever. Yeah. Well, love you downtown train. I mean, hold on, hold on. What a great fucking song. Great songs. Come up to the house. Come on up to the house. Great song. I stole that. Got that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, got that. The house where nobody lives. The house where nobody lives. Oh, those fucking lyrics. Awesome. Oh, yeah. You and I could go deep on this. Oh, yeah. I can geek out on, on Tom Waits all day long. And by the way, so wait, you'll appreciate this story very quickly. And then we'll wrap up on your stuff because I don't want to geek out. On, but it's fine. I only got to interview Tom once. It was for Rolling Stone. And at the time, right, I was, you know, you know what you were saying when you were talking to him. And you're like, I, you know, like you don't understand. Yeah. So I did the interview. And I was trying so hard to be cool because I was absolutely losing my shit on the other end. He calls me, his assistant calls and says, okay, Tom's going to call you in a minute. He, I pick up the phone. He's like, stay, Tom. And I'm losing my shit. We do this great conversation. And afterwards, his publicist at the time, who was a longtime friend, was like, yeah, he really enjoyed the interview. But he's like, that guy was so cool. Does he even like my music? And that was the last time that I ever tried to play it cool in an interview. I was like, no, nah, fuck this. I'm going to be a fan. Yeah, I, I'm that, I think that that's wonderful. He was. So, but it's interesting. Look, because as a songwriter, right, you are never satisfied. No one is ever satisfied. No. I think back to talking with Don Henley and him no. telling me 
that, you know, well, all I hear when I hear Desperado is I wish we could re-record the drums because I was 24 when I did it. And that's one of the most beloved songs of all time. But as a writer, you hit moments that you feel like that's who I want to be, that you, you, you're getting closer. And I feel like there are a lot of those moments on this album. For you, when you look at this, are there those moments where you can take that pride and it's like, all right, I'm getting closer to who I want to be as a writer and as an artist. I'm too close to the album today to tell you a song, but this album says that for me. Um, I'm just a little too close to it right now because I'm literally just, you know, working on the live film that we shot of it and, and editing, and I'm, I'm still too close. But I'm so proud of the it, the whole. One thing that the COVID did was it allowed me to go back and listen to a whole bunch of the albums because I'd sort of run out of things to listen to. You know, the one downside for me of having streaming in the entire world in your pocket is that you don't go to the record store and go through the the rack of what's new this week, you know, or walk in and see a display and go, oh, yeah. So unless somebody's on your mind, you forget about it and you forget about them. And so I, I found myself okay, I'm bored enough, let me listen to some of our records, do a one-minute record review for the social media and put it out there. And, and some of it, I go, wow, it's better than I thought. Some of it wasn't as good as I'd hoped. But, <laughs> but the, the point is, is that I went, you know, the body of work still holds up to me, and I'm not going to criticize a time in that it was this year or that year. I just can look back on the the records and who we were at that time as a, as a part of the process and the progress. And the aspiration is that none of them were good enough, you know, but in the moment, every one of them was good enough or you wouldn't have released it. The one thing I will say and from a songwriter's point of view, and I think that anyone putting out a record now will understand this. When I had turned this in, in, I guess, February or so, um, it was done. And, had I not had COVID to stop its release, allow me to take it back for this six months, open up the hood again, rewrite lyrics, write two more songs, and then put the cellophane on it and put it back out, it wouldn't have been this good. So in a weird way, I sort of wish that I'd had that opportunity with every record. You know, and, and you go, if I only had six months after I turned it in, maybe I could have done better. You know, and there wouldn't have been that album track that wasn't so good. Um, but in and of those moments, every single time when I let it go, I thought that was the best we could do. It's so funny you say that, though, because I've spoken to so many artists during this time who've really found a new creative voice and a new sort of, you know, creative freedom. Because, like, who was it I was talking with? I don't even remember who was saying. And it was a good point. You know, you do album tour, album tour, and you're on a cycle. And without that tour, or without that that cycle, you now have time to find stuff and to express yourself in a different way because I'm sure that you had a massive tour planned and yeah. it's like the album has to be done for that, you know, in time for the tour. Yeah, oh yeah, I was done. You know, it's like, I, I, yeah, absolutely positively. This was it. I'm going out in the summer. I've had enough. Here's your record. Did the best I could up until that point. When I pulled the plug and then rewrote and wrote more, that, that was the greatest gift I caught out of this COVID. 
All right. Well, I don't want to keep you too, too long. So, so you mentioned for what it's worth, what are some of your other, a couple of your other sort of protests or songs? If it's funny, Chris and I were talking about this earlier. Lucinda Williams was like, I don't like the term protest song. So she called it songs of social change and justice. So either protest songs or songs of social change and justice. Why I agree with what she's saying. And it's not that I don't like protest songs because I do. These, my songs are not songs of protest or of politics but of social um, observation, because I just, like I said, I'm, I'm just trying to bear witness to history. But in the case of um, my being the fanboy again, I did think about this a little bit today. Change is gonna come, Sam Cooke, one of the great songs ever. And I had the opportunity to sing it at Obama's inauguration. And I sang it with Betty Levette. And the general public may not know who Betty Levette is. And she didn't have the hits that the Supremes had or Martha and the Vandellas or, you know, all the girl bands and Ronnie Spector. But boy, could she sing. And when we did that song on the steps of the monument in front of a brand new president named Barack Obama, I saw in her eyes all of the history of her and those who came before her. And I'll carry that memory with me forever. And to hear her sing those first lines, you know, I was born by the river and I was like, holy shit, I got the greatest seat in in the world. And then I got to, you know, sing the next verse in the, the bridge, and I'm singing the high note, you know, um, move me to the core. And that was a big day with a great song. Stephen Stills, for what it's worth, I think was, was something that I used as a benchmark with this record, with songs like Lower the Flag and, and American Reckoning. Um, and then, of course, Dylan's Times They Are Changing, because he was... He was the voice of a generation and, you know, I, I can't imagine what the world would have been without him. You know, how they made all those jukebox musical movies this year. That's the guy that they could have done like the Beatles movie yesterday. They could have done it without Bob, you know, with Bob as the, the catalyst, because imagine what the world would have been if he hadn't been here and it, it just wouldn't be the same. So those are the three I picked for you. Which are all great timeless songs. And it's funny because you mentioned, you know, for what it's worth is kind of a benchmark for this. But when you look at all of those, you know, talk about how then you take those through your own work and over the years. And I mean, because it's like, again, it's what we're talking about, whether it's a sociopolitical song, whether it's a story song, whether it's a love song, a great song is just a great song. And what makes a great song is a universality. I think I've realized that is, that is the, you know, yeah. When people can hear a song and identify themselves in it. Yeah. Well, I've had that time and again, you know, and, and throughout our body of work that has been a resonating theme is to try to find timeless, classic, universal appeal uh, in something that comes from your heart. And Living on a Prayer, in and of that moment, was that unique of a song that didn't sound like anything that anyone had done on the radio. The The place that... Tommy and Gina became these iconic fictional characters in American pop culture. 
that have lived now for generations. Um, so I get that. And um, that's great storytelling. I get that. When, when now, I just wanted to approach things differently. So much like when Steven or Bob or Sam write those songs, you saw something else out the window and you couldn't not write that and be in that moment and not be, you know, the pop songwriter of Living on a Prayer, you know, even though I, I was a co-writer on that. Um, I had to write these differently and, and it was the only way to write them. I, I wouldn't want to write a boy-girl song at this time. It's just, it wouldn't resonate with me. So it's so interesting for you when you, like you say, you're still so close to this record. By the way, you mentioned a live film. So have you gotten to do all these songs live already? You know what, what happened? It was a beautiful accident. Um, we were aware of the iHeart Music Festival, the radio chain. And John, by the way, is a very good friend of mine. So yes. John? Yeah. Oh, Sykes is, a, you know, one of my best friends. And, um, and so because of Sykes, I was like, wow, I'd be interested if... When you're done, you guys leave me the cameras and the lights and the soundstage. And so we paid for everything for the next day, dressed it differently. And I told the guys, know this album front and back because we've got a day and we can, we can capture it on film and I can talk about the songs on film. And so we did that. And so I have the album in its entirety performed by the band uh, on a dressed up iHeart stage. Now, you know, that's really cool because what's interesting about that, right? Look, when you perform songs live, they change. They absolutely evolve. Audiences make them their own. But even though you didn't get to do this in front of an audience, I look at, for me as a Springsteen fan, you look at a film like Western Stars, those songs absolutely transform. So for you, doing these songs live, how did they change when you got to do this album from start to finish live? Most of them didn't change because... It was literally the first time that we ever played them. So everybody was just focused on playing them as though they were on the record. The only darkness that I walked away with having had one day to play this album in its entirety was that when I've seen the cut, um, I know that I'm so in thought instead of being in the moment that what I'm missing is that connection with the audience. That's the big black hole that's existing right now. So, you know, sports teams are playing without a crowd. They're piping in sound. I think a lot of that has to do with getting their, their psyche up, you know, and imagining that crowd. For me, performing in that dark room, thinking to myself, I'm the consummate pro. I'll just look down the lens and smile on cue. It doesn't work that way. You really got to have that interaction in order to connect and then I could have pulled the songs in a in a different way and, and given them a bit of a roller coaster ride and broken them down and built them back up. I just I didn't have the time in one day. There was just too many songs in, in a day. Well, but here's the thing is presumably sometime in 2021, 2022, God knows when yeah. it's gonna be, yeah. you're gonna get to play these songs live. So when you think of playing these songs in front of the audience, yeah. breaking them down in front of the audience. Are there ones that you are most excited to see how a crowd responds to them and, and you know, getting to have that interaction? Again, because I, I'm sorry, but the answer is that I'm too close to the album. 
and why I'm, I'm being hesitant to be more proud of one song than another is that I'm, okay, obviously proud of the album. Truth is, I'm also thinking, oh yeah, I th thought this song was going to be massive in stadiums. And then I'd go play in the stadium and <laughs> go, that didn't work. <laughs> so I've had that happen. And there was a, a song on, on What About Now? It was called Because We Can. And, uh, and I was so sure that that was going to be a monster and work a charm in the studio, in the, in the stadium. It did not. So it was a work record. It did not, it did not work great with the crowds. And so you never know what song's going to connect with a crowd. No, that's true. I talk about those people all the time. You think that it's like, okay, this is going to be our best song. And then you're like, and then the track that you think, eh, I, I don't know, we'll throw it on there. And that becomes their favorite. But, you know, there becomes a curiosity. So, and, and it's fair. I get what you're saying. It's funny because I mean, you know, it, it takes, when you're in the midst of making a record, you're so involved in it. It often takes, it's funny. I was just interviewing Ani DeFranco yesterday and I was asking her about her new album. She's like, ask me in 20 or 30 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I just say, give me a year. Just give, give me a year to walk away from it. Yeah, that's usually my, my answer. Cool. What do you want to add we didn't talk about? Because we covered a lot. I really appreciate talking about songs and songwriting. That, that just makes my day. So thank you for that. No, thank you, man. This was a blast. It's funny because I think, you know, we've met once or twice at events that I've covered for like Rolling Stone or stuff, but we've never gotten to do the sit down. So when Kristen approached me, I was super excited about it, you know, and, and to talk because I can geek out on songwriting all day. Yeah, me too. You should try to sit down and start writing. I started as a creative writer and I started at NYU and I wrote poetry. And then I had that, that realization that even if I was actually any good, which I wasn't, I still wasn't going to make a living at it. So, you know, but at least then I can understand the writing process a little bit coming from that perspective. You don't have to make a living out of it. It'll give you joy beyond your dreams. And, you know, the greatest thing about a song is that it's the closest thing to immortality that we'll ever know. You know, and think of Beetle Paul. Those songs will be here after the sun doesn't shine. You know, and that's that's sort of the the, the the idea. So I would, you know, still not give up on the idea of sitting down and strumming three chords and putting a, a lyric to it. Well, I mean, then we'll wrap up on this last note, but it's funny for you, you know, when you think about being that kid and think about the fact... And it, it's multiple. It's not just living on a prayer. It's not just one. I mean, you know, it, there's so many songs. When you think about that immortality, I mean, how does that sort of boggle your mind to know that, that you know, like, because again, for everybody who starts out, they start off as a fan. They start off as a kid. And, and Steve Van Zandt, who I know you've known for many years, he once said to me when he was 14, he's like, you never could have dreamed my life. But I always love that line because I think for most people who achieve success, that, that remains true. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the bigger the star, the nicer the person. So, you know, that is all true. Um, you know, to have had a body of work that truly has stood the test of time and is still all over the radio around the globe is mind-blowing. And, and it gives me great joy because I am capable of keeping the radio station on when I hear the song come on the radio. <laughs> I don't change and go, oh, yeah. Now, I, now I'll sit there and go, yeah, sounds good. You know, and, and, and that was then and this is now and that's the body of work and take the time to embrace it. 
Cool. What a pleasure. It was a great honor. Thanks so much for your time, man. Very kind, pal. All right. All the best, Steve. Talk to you. See ya. Thanks. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you have been here for People Have the Power with John Bon Jovi. I told you this one was special. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did.